0: All right, let me call our attention now to Genesis chapter 38. If you would turn there, we'll be looking at this story today. We're taking a pause in our Joseph series to talk about the brother of Joseph, Judah, and to track the redemptive journey that God took him on and why His story interrupts the story of Joseph in a very jarring way. As I have read Genesis chapter 38 many times this week, I've cringed over and over again. I've I've read it and been sad at the choices that Judah made, that his family members made. And I've asked myself time and again, why is this story in the Bible? Why did God choose to include it here? And I think that it comes back to a question that each of us need to consider this morning. Why are any of us in the family of God? Why are any of us included in the story that God is writing? There's a mystery about all of this. When you read someone life like Joseph's life. You get the impression that he did everything right. Um, There's not any marks on his um, ledger. (laughs) He seems to have made choices that always put him, even in the most tempting of times, in the least compromising situations. And he ran towards God no matter what. And then you've got Judah, his older brother. Well, I wanted to ask, have you ever done something, have you ever sinned in such a way where having done it and having come face to face with yourself, you wondered if you could ever be restored again? You've wondered if you could ever make right what you made wrong, if you could ever truly be accepted back into the people of God, the family of God. I read this week about a guy named Austin and his girlfriend Alicia Austin was a teenager, worked as a church janitor part-time in his church. His girlfriend, Alicia's dad, worked full-time in the church. Um, And at age 17, uh, they they discovered that they were expecting a baby, not married. And for them, that scared them. It also made them feel deep shame. The initial gut reaction is... Fix this, but how do you fix that? They understood that, well, you could get an abortion. That's possible. But they kept waiting, and finally it was six months in, and they couldn't hide it anymore. They determined that as soon as they broke the news, they would skip out of the state and go somewhere else to live. Such was the weight of what they felt was unbreakable shame, which sadly nowadays in our culture doesn't seem all that shameful. But at the same time for them, in the midst of it, it was the end of their world. Have you ever known someone who was in that spot, maybe it was you, who were in that spot where you found that you had done something that seemed to be unfixable and you were in a situation that felt unredeemable? Or maybe you and your own view of yourself would View yourself in those ways, unfixable, unredeemable, that the grace of God, as good as it is, is just too good for someone like you. God gives you the story of Judah. And this morning we're going to look at two points and make some applications along the way. I had to to leave out the third point because of what we just did up here with the elders, all right? I had to make some time somewhere. No, really, there's really only two points that we could have And there are these, the story of Judah's sin and the scandal of God's grace. And the title of the sermon today is Scandalous Grace. And really that's what we're talking about when we look back at the story of this guy named Judah. All right, I said I would read here in Genesis chapter 38, and we're not gonna read the whole chapter this morning. I'm gonna summarize a fair deal, refer in the future to chapter 44. But you might remember last week Um, As Jake taught in here and as James taught in the hub, uh, we talked, we heard, taught um, the concept of discipline. God used discipline in the lives of these brothers of Joseph, and he used Joseph in that process of disciplining them, of refining them. What we're doing today is we're entering into the life of Judah, who Jake in here told us stood before Joseph and was willing when push came to shove to be totally different than what he was in chapter 37 where he betrayed a brother and sold him into slavery. By chapter 44, when you reach the end of that chapter, Judah is standing before Joseph. He doesn't know that's Joseph yet and pleads with him to receive himself, Judah, in the place of his youngest brother. He thinks of his father still living back in Canaan who would be destroyed if yet another son was betrayed and sold or lost and killed. Judah was willing to take his place. But what must have been going through Judah's mind as he stood there and knelt there in front of Joseph? Much like flashbacks can happen to us in key moments of our lives, and things become more crystal clear, I think in his mind, he went back to the events that took place over the span of years in chapter 38. It begins this way. It happened at that time. What time is that? That's when Joseph was by now serving the initial few weeks and months as a servant in the house of Potiphar. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. I'll stop the reading there and just summarize a bit of this story. Now, sometimes the Bible zeroes in on and focuses on the particular sin of somebody. Now, why does, why does God do that? Well, we'll examine that in just a little bit, but it's never, I will tell you, to glamorize the sin. You think of David with Bathsheba. It was not to glamorize the sin of casual sexual relationships. It showed the devastation of what happens when you indulge in such things. Now, Judah has determined that he wants to leave his dad and brothers and his mom, Leah, and that extended messed up family, and strike off on his own. He didn't go too far away where he settles in this land um, of Adullam is actually not too far away from where the modern-day Jerusalem is. And as he settles there, he finds a buddy named Hira, and they begin to hang out. Hira was a Canaanite. He was not a follower of God. Judah is an interesting guy coming into this environment because he doesn't quite fit and he doesn't belong. His family has been worshipers of Yahweh. Judah himself, in his very name, means praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. But here he is, out in the world, making friends with somebody who is an influence for no practical good in his life. The Bible tells us that shortly thereafter, Judah sees a certain daughter of a Canaanite, a man named Shua. The lady is never mentioned. I thought maybe perhaps her name was Shua. It's actually the name of her dad. His soon-to-be wife remains unnamed. But the text tells us that he operated in a rather crass way. He took her and went into her. And consequently, they had three sons. It was interesting in the text, it said that he named the first one and she named the next two. He had Ur, Onan, and Sheila. Well, the text goes on and it says that time passes and Judah chooses a wife for his oldest son, Ur. This is in your text in verse six onward. He finds a young woman named Tamar. Nothing is said about her background, but it's safe to assume that she too is from a Canaanite tribe and nothing really is said about her origin. Much more is said later on about her future. But for now, all we know is that she is the very young wife, very likely in her teen years, chosen for Ur, the oldest son. Well, in the course of time, Ur is struck dead by God. We don't know why other than his wickedness before the Lord. And in this time period, there was no codified law saying what should happen in this circumstance to protect the widow, but the culture of the day believed in what has become known as the Leverite law. Leverite. It has nothing to do, I used to think it had something to do with Levi, the son of Judah. But it doesn't. It actually comes from the Latin word levir, which means the husband's brother. So basically, it's the husband's brother law. And that law said, when the husband died, the next brother in line should take the responsibility of marrying the, the first brother's widow and to produce a child for her so that she could continue the father's line. Now, what's very interesting about this is what son this would have been. This would have been not just any son, but the heir of Judah, the heir of Jacob, the heir of Isaac, the heir of Abraham, the son of the promise. The battle of the the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent is still going on. Here in Canaan, God has planted his promised family. And the journey has taken them through many twists and turns. But they are still to carry on and bring about that one who will crush the head of the serpent and who will bring about the kingdom kingdom that will restore salvation to all nations. Judah is really stuck in his own rut right now. And Onan, the second son, takes responsibility, and he does marry Tamar, but he uses her for his own sexual gratification and refuses to do what's right and to provide for her as a husband does. And I think his choices were related back to his defiance of Yahweh, he would not do what the Lord said to do. He would defy this God. And it says, likewise, the Lord killed him too. By this time, Judas becoming concerned that Tamar is somewhat of a bad omen. So he sends her back to her father's house, and he says, listen, when my youngest son is old enough, I will give him to you. But it's not time for that yet. But a lot of time continues to go by. And Tamar obediently goes back to her father's house and waits. But she determines over time that Judah is not going to keep his word. And she decides to take matters into her own hands. It says that in the course of time also, this unnamed wife of Judah likewise dies. And after a certain period of mourning, I would think it wouldn't be too long Um, because of how Judah responds afterward. Um, He does not mourn too long, but goes out, and it's actually, the Bible tells us, the time of sheep shearing. This time period, whenever people would shear their sheep, it was the period where lots of new growth would be coming out, new wheat would grow, other plants would grow. And the wicked fertility cults in this time would actually send the women of the villages out into the villages as a prostitute free-for-all for for whoever would come. This was demonically driven, and it was the only thing that this culture knew. These were the very things that God was concerned that his people not get involved in. And so what happens is that in the course of time, Tamar, knowing the character of her father-in-law, Makes a tragic but tact, you know, kind of a tactful or a a tactical choice to do something to get what she wants. She wants to carry on the family name. She wants to produce the child for this. So she changes from her mourning clothes into the clothes of a prostitute, wrapping her face up with a veil, and goes and sits down at the gate where Judah is certain to pass by. And pass by, he does. Now, making this part very short, he sees her, and sure enough, he wants to engage sexually with her, so he approaches, and what happens in the course of time? Before any of this happens, um, Tamar wants to get some assurances that her father-in-law will make right and pay what he's supposed to. He agrees to give her a goat. Apparently, that was the payment in that time. He didn't have any goats with him. So as way of um, assurance that he would come back with a payment, she says, well, what about that signet that's hanging on your, your neck? And what about your staff? Both very unique things that belonged to those who carried them. So she ends up getting those things from him. And Judah goes in. Tamar comes out later on. Changes back into her morning clothes, um, goes back to her father's house, and takes with her the signet and the staff that belonged to Judah. Judah goes back and gets his goat, but he sends his buddy Hira back to that place to give over the payment to the prostitute. Hira is not ashamed, so he goes and he's going around the village. Hey, where's that prostitute? He uses a different word for prostitute, the cult prostitute who would wrap themselves in veils as a part of the temple cult of fertility. But the people of the village say, there's no prostitute here. There's nobody, that, nobody like that that hangs out here. So Hira shrugs his shoulders and goes back to Judah and says, hey, she's not there, and no one knows where she is. And so Judah just brushes off his hands and says, all right, I've lost... That signet and that staff, if she wants them, she can keep them. Good riddance, I just want to forget this whole thing ever happened. And of course, that's not what happens. I want to pause in the narrative for just a minute to acknowledge a couple of important things. As hard as this has been to digest and ingest, we need to pause for a minute and talk. And this is what I want to say God doesn't hesitate to describe sin but he presents it honestly and shows the death it brings this is what a story in the bible in the bible is is for this particular event on the one hand shows we have some people in the bible who we often look to as heroes who are really really messed up and god does not want us to miss the tragedy of sin and what it brings. With bold, glaring letters, he describes the effect of willful, sinful behavior. And in this case, some very sordid sexual behavior. Proverbs six thirty-two to 33 would summarize Judah's life up to this point. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Those are hard but true words. And Proverbs are not a promise as much as they are a statement on reality. This is what happens. You do this, this is what happens. Thankfully, there's a way to fix that. But if you don't recognize what's broken, it can't be fixed. Likewise, James chapter 1 says this, Uh, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Remember I said, God does not shy away from presenting sin in all of its ugly blackness in the Bible. But he does so in such a way to highlight that it, it points to death. And he wants us to bear that in mind. On the one hand, when you read Genesis chapter 38, you ought to be thinking in your mind, this is a story that is a warning to me. This story warns me that the effects of sin are such that if I dive into it or even put a toe into it, it's like James says here, that's like being hooked and being dragged to your own death. There's a warning here. And I would just ask you at this point, is there sin in your story that you would be ashamed to reveal? Is there sin in your story that you would be ashamed to reveal? If your life was written in one chapter of the Bible, what would God choose to highlight? Would it be all the things that you are proud of? Or would it be the sins that you tend to minimize and forget about even as you see them in other people and maybe judge them very harshly? Would it be your religious accomplishments? Or would God highlight for some of us beneath the threshold, maybe what Jake was talking about last week, that tendency to sit in the same place week after week but never grow, saying all the right things, but not having the heart to love and follow God. What would you be ashamed to reveal? What would I be ashamed to reveal? If you are like me, and I think more of you are like me than perhaps you might like to freely admit in a setting like this, if you knew me, you and I are in big trouble because of our sin. But This is what I know about our God. As scandalous as the sin, even more scandalous is the grace that God gives to sinners. And let's look at the second point, the scandal of God's grace. Well, a little more time goes, and Tamar begins to show. That's what happens to pregnant women. They begin to show. And she waits as long as she can, but rumors start to circulate in the household of Tamar's father. And word gets back to Judah, who has, I mean, he in his view, he's not spoken to Tamar in years. Joseph, in the meanwhile, has been through prison. He's been out of prison. He's serving the Pharaoh. And Judah's life just continues to spiral down. Well, in what seems to be the tombstone for Judah, somebody comes and says, Tamar has been found to be pregnant through immorality. And Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. Do you imagine that response? It's not what churches should do when we find out that a young lady is pregnant in the wrong way. Our responses in this time period need to be telling the grace of God But Judah obviously had not experienced the grace of God or had not been awakened to it yet. This is what happens. Judah is waiting for Tamar to arrive, and in the meantime, she secures those items that she got as a guarantee from Judah, the signet that he wore around his neck and the staff that he carried. And she sends them ahead of her. She's not there yet. But this is what happens, and this is very unique. Judah gets caught in his own sin. She says, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. This is verse 25. And then she says something that sounds very familiar with something that happened in in chapter 37. Please identify whose these are. The signet and the cord and the staff. As Judah was knowingly caught in his own sin at this point, I can't help but think that he thought back years earlier, to what he had said to his own dad when they brought the bloody colored robe back to Jacob. And they said to him, please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. His own words twisted, but in a way that is a pierce to his own soul. Judah considers what he has done, and he realizes That those, well, at this point, the child that Tamar carries is his. And so his conclusion is this. He says, She, verse 26, Tamar, is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. This is a remarkable admission of guilt. Judah owns his guilt. And he recognizes that there is nothing he can do now to go back and fix this. He also recognizes that bringing Tamar out and burning her is not the right response. Because by saying she is more righteous than me, that was his way of saying I am an immoral man. I have sinned. I am the one who did this. And the text tells us that Judah is honest by his admission, it says he never goes into her to gratify himself ever again. He recognized that that was wrong. And yes, you could say, I didn't know. But he he put himself in that situation. And he owned his own sin as a result. You see, Judah has been divided all this time. Living like the next patriarch of God's covenant family, while living entirely for himself. As he makes that humble confession, we see something begin to change in Judah. And Tamar herself, in the course of time, delivers not one child, but two. The story is unique. When it comes time for her to bring the baby into the world, the midwife discovers that it's not one, but two. So a hand comes out, And the story says the midwife ties a scarlet cord around its arm, but then, whoop, it goes back in, and out comes another baby with no cord on his arm. And they named him Perez, which means breach. He said, you've really broken all the rules here, buddy, in coming out first. And then the second one came out, Zara. Now, if you know anything about the story of the patriarchs, when you have a weird birth like this, where there seems to be fighting in the womb, that has great significance for the plan of God. And there's at least a hint by this point that something big is going to happen in these kids that resulted from a really messed up sexual situation. That God was going to do something great. That his grace in the midst of this scandal would be more scandalous still. As we read on, In Matthew chapter 1, we get the finished story of what happened here. Matthew chapter 1 verses 2 to 6 is the genealogy of who? Jesus the Christ. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Note those names again. Judah. Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I'm going to read on. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In these verses you see Judah and Tamar and Perez and Zera. But in particular you see Perez becoming a father who had a son, who continued the, the line all the way down, ultimately to David the King, and generations later to Jesus the Messiah. What a wonder of God's scandalous grace that he would take people who were so messed up and include them in the family line of Jesus the Messiah. That's, that's scandalous. So let's conclude with some notes about this scandalous grace for each of us to consider today. The point is God freely gives grace, not what we deserve. I hear so often in culture today, people calling out for what they deserve, that they want what's coming to them. <laughs> no you don't. <laughs> you don't want what's coming to you, you want grace, grace. You, you, you may not understand it, but you can get it. You may not fully have mined the depths of all that it means. But you can experience it as the Spirit awakens you to your own lostness and to God's abundant love. For all kinds of sinners, for all lostness, there's one Savior. I love Psalm 103, verses 10 to 14, that begin with the character of God for us. so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I can't tell you why Ur and Onan were struck dead. There must be a point in time where wickedness becomes so great that God deals with it decisively and instantly. But I know that if you are here today and you are breathing, you are still alive. Come, just like the kids and Kelsey led us this morning, come and find mercy. With all your addictions, with all your failures, with all your sins, and lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting. God the Father is there, waiting For you, with open arms, I guarantee it. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, that is the goodness of the grace of God. But how can this be? Well, when you come, grace provides what you can't make happen in yourself, and that is a broken heart over sin. A broken heart over sin. I love uh, James chapter four. It's not on the screens. I won't even read it, but refer to it. The order of what you do when you recognize that you have gone so far that shame overwhelms you and you don't know if there's a way back. The Bible says the thing to do is to draw near to God. Draw near to God. And then it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why? Because you can't clean yourself. But if you draw near to God and you know his character and you know that it is safe to come to him because of the provision he's made for you to come, you can be forgiven and your heart will break over your sin. I guarantee it. You draw near to God, God will draw near to you and he will give you a broken heart. This is what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Amen? Amen. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is what happened to Judah when he saw that signet and that staff. He recognized I'm the guilty one. Oh, the blessedness of God-delivered brokenness. Brokenness over sin. For those of you who might be wondering today, is there any, I I think I've given my life to Jesus. I think I have trusted him with my life. I've said sorry for my sins. I truly have, and I feel sorry for my sins. Isn't there something more I need to do? No, no. The grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is enough for you. And I've been in those waters, thinking in my mind, afflicted by either what I've done wrong or what I didn't do enough good to pass the tests of God. And God, in his grace, brings me back to that point where I realize again in the depths There's nothing I can do. But Jesus has done everything. It's Jesus. Jesus has done this. And that's what the story of Judah and Tamar points us to. Jesus, (laughs) he is good news. I love what grace further does, and we conclude by thinking about this. Grace forgives and it includes you in the family of Jesus. It doesn't leave you or I broken in our sin, but fully forgives and includes us in the family of Jesus. You know, I consider the change that happened in Judah from the beginning to the end, from chapter 37 to where we really are in the course of Joseph's life up in chapter 44. Sometime shortly after Judah had this brokenness in his own spirit, the famine would have hit And he would have gone by his dad's direction down to Egypt to get some grain. And it's there that he encountered Joseph and bowed before him, but ultimately stood before him with the plea to be substituted for his younger brother, to be put in the place of his younger brother so his younger brother could go free. As Jake told us last week, as James presented, that is the character of their greater son and ancestor, Jesus Christ, That change takes place in someone when they have come and when they have submitted and laid down their sins before the holy and they receive forgiveness and inclusion. They know they belong, not by what they've done, but by grace. I think of Tamar. She sinned too in this text. God does not highlight this sin in order to glorify her, but neither does God punish her. God shows great grace to Tamar too and includes her and her sons in the family line of Jesus. When we think about who is in that, that uh, family tree in the book of Matthew, I read through the first few verses and you may not have noticed, but there were four women's names. There was Tamar and there was Rahab. There was Ruth. And there was the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba. All of those women were likely foreigners, even Bathsheba, who was likely a Hittite, or as married into a Hittite family, a Hittite by marriage. All of them, to some degree or other, had some scandal connected to them, and in most cases, sexually. And there they are, in the lineage of the Savior, Jesus Christ. In that lineage, you will find Jews and Gentiles, men and women. You will find leaders, and you will find sexually immoral. You will find people who were betrayed. You will find people who were cast off by society. And yet, there's one Savior who redeems them all, Jesus Christ. I want to conclude today with some words from Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie. Um, She has a book where she talks about the saints and the scoundrels in the story of Jesus. And I love what she said. She said, my friend, if the story and secrets of your life were recorded for all to read, as the stories of Abraham and Sarah, Judah, and Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, or David, and Bathsheba were recorded for us to read, if your story includes sexual scandals such as adultery, incest, or becoming pregnant by someone you're not married to, you're going to fit right into Jesus' family. If you've been deceitful or hateful, if if you've used or destroyed other people to get what you wanted, if you've touted your religious credentials to impress other people when in reality you've wanted nothing to do with God himself, welcome to the family. If you've taken God's generous provision for you for granted, if you've doubted God's promises, if you've presumed upon God's protection while also ignoring him, we can see the family resemblance. If you have no hope to be accepted into God's family, other than the perfect record of your righteous brother Jesus, then you can be sure that you have found your forever family. No one gets into God's family by being born into it. You must be reborn into it. And no one gets into God's family through good behavior. The only way any of us become a part of this family is by grace through faith. Judah's story is in there to show us the tragedy of sin, but it's also in there to show us the scandal of God's grace. And for you, my friends, as we turn now to the Lord's Supper, bear in mind this grace of our Lord. As our team comes back to join us for the Lord's Supper and to help lead us in this time of response, I want you to consider today what these elements represent the bread and the cup are a part of a family dinner each of us who take this today need to first of all recognize the importance of being in the family and the terms by which you become a part of the family so this is a remembrance today in a family setting not just to do emotion or to fulfill some obligation, but by celebrating that Jesus has made it not only possible, but accomplished that we can sit here as recipients of grace by His sacrificed body and shed blood. If your hope is in Jesus Christ today, and Him alone for your salvation, no works of your own, then this participation is for you. If you have not turned to Jesus, At this point in your story, if the story of your sin has not been matched yet and overwhelmed by the scandal of God's grace, then use this time to pray. Draw near to God and ask him for that broken heart for your sin. But my friends, as we consider what God has for us and the open arms of Jesus to come, we can rejoice in what he has accomplished. When he, on that night that he was betrayed, took the bread and he broke it, and when he had done so, he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let me pray. Lord, as you said that, you you gave us the grace to know of your sacrifice and the brokenness of your own body on the cross. As we look back through the pages of the story We see that you who bore no sin took all of our sin on your body on the cross. Such a scandalous exchange. Oh, but yet how gracious of you to give your body. Lord Jesus, we thank you. And as he commanded, church family, let's eat.